is the Mulberry Lane Show. The Mulberry Lane Show. Exclusive interviews, fun, music, celebrities. Your weekend getaway. Here's Mulberry Lane, Rachel, Bo, and Ellie Cat. Be a part of the family. Hey, it's Allie here along with your radio sisters, Rachel and Bo. And guess what, guys? It's time for the Mulberry Lane Show. Ah! <laughs> well, so glad you guys are along for the ride today. Let's get started on that musical journey. Woo, let's do it. The Mulberry Lane Show's on. Celebrity story songs. You're gonna have it going on when we tell you who's stopping by now. Up first today, guys, Grammy Award winning singer songwriter Mark Cohn. Now you know him from this hit. Then I'm walking in Memphis. Walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. And this one. I'm asking you to be my true companion. Well, today, Mark joins your weekend to tell you all about one of his latest projects. He co-wrote three songs for the new Blind Boys of Alabama album called Almost Home. Now, the Blind Boys of Alabama are a legendary gospel group, and Mark shares some amazing behind-the-scenes stories. You'll really dig getting an insider look at this project and how the songs came together. And you're also going to hear Mark talk about the writing and recording of his massive hit, Walking in Memphis. So you're in for a musical treat today. All right, sisters, who's next? Okay, well, then you're going to hear from soulful pop songstress Haley Reinhardt. Wise men say only fools rush in. Now, you may know Haley from American Idol Season 10. She came in third place. Haley went on to have a gold single. Her version of Can't Help Falling in Love With You was featured on an extra gum commercial. And as you just heard, Haley has a gorgeous voice. Today, she's going to talk about her latest release on Concord Records called What's That Sound? And this album features all songs from the late 60s, plus a few that Haley wrote. You're also going to get a behind-the-scenes look at what it was like being on American Idol and what went through her head right before she went out there on stage. Wow, good stuff. That's right. (laughs) Okay, sisters, who's next? Well, then you're going to meet number one New York Times best-selling author, Victoria Aveyard. You're going to find out all about the third book in the Red Queen series called King's Cage. Now, this series has been sold into 37 languages, and Victoria shares some secrets behind her writing process. Mm -hmm. Well, this show is definitely vibing with a lot of cool music, and Allie, you've kind of had a cool dream to fit in with this total musical vibey stuff, right? Yes. And I got to share it with you guys. So it was earlier this week, and have you ever had one of those really vivid dreams where you wake up and for a second you're like, did that really happen or not? That can really be a trip. Yes, it really was. So... I had a dream that Paul McCartney sent me a little steel figurine of a tower in Liverpool named Mulberry Lane. And in his note, 
And in the dream, I could see his handwriting and everything. It was oh crazy. Gosh. He wrote, just thought you sisters might want to have this. Not sure if you knew it existed. So then when I woke up, I was like, oh my gosh, I wonder if there is a Mulberry Lane Tower in Liverpool. <laughs> so I Googled it. And of course, there is not. But it was such a great way to start the day. And I was like, what does that dream mean? So I've been trying to figure it out. Maybe Paul McCartney will be a guest on the show coming up. I was hoping that. <laughs> okay, so let's look into that, girls. Let's send a guest query out to Paul McCartney. And then maybe we can say we love the Mulberry Lane Tower in Liverpool. Yes! <laughs> maybe that'll get us attention. Okay, well, we're going to go from Liverpool with Paul McCartney to Walking in Memphis with Mark Cohn. Be right back with this amazing singer-songwriter who wrote one of music's classic songs. Right back with Mark Cohn here on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Meet the celebrities on your radio station. Back to the Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Thanks for keeping it here on the Mulberry Lane Show, brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Well, you know him from the hit song, Walking in Memphis. Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter Mark Cohn is here to chat about his co-writes of three songs for the new album, Almost Home, by legendary gospel group Blind Boys of Alabama. Now, Mark's going to fill you in on that project, plus what he's been up to musically. <laughs> Welcome Welcome to the show, Mark Cohn. Uh, thank you very much. I've never been sung into an interview. That's Yay! great. Okay. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you. So now you have to tell us how you got involved in the Blind Boys of Alabama project. Well, I'm very, I'm very lucky I, I was asked to get involved. They're so fantastic. I love them so much. I actually toured with them a bit, and I'm going to uh, next year as well. Okay. But the way I got involved in the record was that they are managed by a, a gentleman who also manages the great soul singer, William Bell. Okay. And William Bell just made a record with my friend John Leventhal producing. Mm -hmm. And John brought me in to help co-write about five of the songs on William's record, which blessedly won Americana Album of the Year at the Grammys. Yes. So um, we were on a bit of a, a winning streak there. Since it's the same manager that manages William that also has the Blind Boys, they asked if we wanted to try and write some songs for the Blind Boys as well. And John so and I when you're hot, you're hot, right? Well, I guess so. It felt great because I hadn't written many songs either for myself or other artists in a, in a while. Okay. But the William Bell songs were so easy to, to help with. And the Blind Boys songs were even more inspiring because the manager very smartly sent me interviews with a couple of the main singers, Jimmy Carter and Clarence Fountain, basically talking about their own lives. Now, stay on the gospel side. Sure. That song is kind of an autobiographical song of Clarence. It is. It is. So it's now, for as, exactly. As a songwriter, how do you approach, like, immersing yourself in his life and then turning That's that right. into a song? That's right. Watching the interview gave me all the information I needed, not only about him as a, as a presence and a human being uh, and a singer. You know, he told his life stories. You know, I literally sat down and took notes watching his interview and tried to just glean some of what I thought were the interesting ideas that could be made into a song and then fill it all in with some sort of poetry and, and something that I thought would be great for him to sing. And I did the same thing with the song that I wrote for Jimmy Carter called Let My Mother Live that John and I wrote with Jimmy. 
which was based on his his interview too, talking about his life with his father dying when he was young. Anyway, it was really just a matter of sitting down with those interviews and trying to get the, the sense of who they were and writing each of them a song that they could sing about themselves as if they'd written the whole thing. That was the idea. So were you in the studio when they recorded these? Unfortunately, I was on the road when these were recorded. Okay. I was really upset I couldn't be there. When you heard their versions, what was your reaction? It was thrilling, you know. I mean, first of all, as a lyricist, to hear those voices, those gentlemen of song and gospel music and such deep soul and spirit, you know, to hear them singing my lyrics, I mean, which were basically their lyrics. And I have to say, I need to mention, they were given credit as songwriters. Okay. Very important that people know that. John and I knew immediately, based on the concept of the record, that, you know, if we were going to be taking ideas from their stories, that they were going to be part to of the writer. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, just to hear them sing the songs, largely lyrics that I had tried to put together for them, was thrilling, because they're the real deal. Yeah. Now, of course, they're pure gospel, and you've kind of always had that sensibility. So where yeah. did that come from for you, and then where did that go for you on this uh, project? It's just music that from the first time I heard it, I mean, there were all kinds of music the first time I heard them that I loved and was drawn to. Uh-huh. Everything from Ray Charles, early Ray Charles, which really was gospel music with right. the lyrics rewritten. I don't even know how it was that a Jewish kid from Cleveland even ended up hearing gospel music so young. <laughs> but I did, and I was immediately drawn to it. Uh-huh. And I asked to go to churches to hear that music, because I couldn't hear that music in temple, that's for sure. But so it, it spoke to you, though. Not only spoke to me, it moved me okay. deeply. I mean, I had a really a very, what's the word, I'm not finding the word right now, but sort of, you know, an absolute bodily experience to it. Would you call, um, it, would you call it a spiritual experience at all? It must have been. It okay. must have been. Uh, it's hard to explain those things or put them in the words. But, you know, music for me is a spiritual experience yeah. when it's great. Mm-hmm. And the gospel music I heard then was great. And then some of my favorite songwriters, like Paul Simon, started using people like the Dixie Hummingbirds on their pop songs. Right. First time I heard Loves Me Like a Rock and a few of the other songs that Paul used the Dixie Hummingbirds on, that blew my mind, too. It was like, wow, these two worlds can come together somehow. Right. I just love that music ever since I heard it, and I'm still a huge fan. So to be part of it and to be able to tour with these guys, it's just been a remarkable thing. I bet that's been amazing. You've got Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Mark Cohn here with you on the Mulberry Lane Show. Every project has a feel that goes with it. How would you describe the feel of this project? Totally joyful. And, yeah, I mean, listen, from the moment the manager contacted us and said, listen, we want you guys to write songs based on the Blind Boys' lives. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was a wonderful concept, you know, not just to give them gospel songs like they had sung for years already, which are beautiful and wonderful, but they've done that. Right. Now for them, at you know, the end of their lives, some of them are quite old, yeah. for them to sing their own stories really appealed to me. Yeah. So it wasn't just joyful, it was also really poignant okay. and very moving uh, to hear these guys singing. You know, I may have written the lyrics, but it was their idea. It's mm-hmm. their lives. Mm-hmm. It was just, I don't know, it was good Almost to be involved. I would. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. Okay, so now let's go back. When you were in the studio recording Walking in Memphis, did you <laughs> have any idea that that song would become what it's become? Did you have a feeling about that at that time? 
I had a feeling when I wrote the song, which was actually years before I recorded it, okay. um, because I, I wrote it in like 1985 and didn't even have a record deal until 1990, I think. Okay. But I knew when I wrote the song that I had begun to find my songwriting okay. voice. That's all I knew. I okay. didn't know it was a hit. I didn't know that at all. So, but I, I did know it was an important song for me okay. as, a, as an artist. Oh, that's neat. So now... Why do you think that song resonated and still endures today? That I couldn't tell you. It's just one of that those I don't things. know. Yeah. It's just one. I mean, you know, I, I have all kinds of answers I could give you, but then those answers would apply to other songs that didn't quite connect. <laughs> That's right. So I, I don't know. In the end, I don't know. I think it's part of it is luck and timing. And yeah. if I had the answer to that, I'd try to write 10 more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and John Leventhal have, you know, collaborated for over 25 years. So why do you think that creative relationship has endured and continued to thrive? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, first of all, John and I are dear friends and our friendship has grown over the years through all the work and, and just our getting to know each other. It's gone beyond that now. I mean, I adore his wife, Roseanne Cash, so we're all really friendly. Uh-huh. I think John is a genius, you know. I, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to work with him. I think he was an amazing songwriter and musician when I met him, which was a long time ago. And unlike most people, he's only gotten better this time. And so I, I, I just think it's really John's sensibility matches mine. Uh-huh. I think there were things that I, you know, brought to his sensibility that made it a little different, and certainly the opposite was true. What and John brought to my music was just fantastic. And you've grown together over time and still appreciate each other, which is awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. So now your recent album, Careful What You Dream, Lost Songs and Rarities. Now that's a collection of demos written and recorded more than 25 years ago. So what made now the time to release that? What went into those decisions? Well, mainly because I realized that my first record was about to celebrate an anniversary. It had been last year was 25 years since it came out. And I wanted to mark that with a few different things. So one thing I did was did a tour where I played that first record from start to finish. And the Blind Boys were with me on a lot of those shows. Wow. Uh, And sang Back Up on Memphis and Silver Thunderbird and Ghost Train. It was fantastic. The other thing I realized it was time maybe to do was to go back into the vaults and look to see what was there. What I was originally looking for were the early demos of Walking in Memphis and True Companion and all the songs from that first record. I found all of that, but what I didn't expect to find were about 15 songs that predated Walking in Memphis, that predated me getting a record deal that I liked. Some of them were very sparse and not produced, but I thought they were worth releasing, so I did. Had you forgotten about the songs? Completely. I mean, except for two or three of them, I I totally forgot about them. And then it's always nice when you go back and hear old work and you think, gosh, that was really good. (laughs) Well, it it was more than nice. I mean, it shocked me. I had sort of, I presumed that everything I'd written that I hadn't released was pretty much terrible. Uh Um, But the truth is, some of them just didn't make the records because they didn't fit sequencing or who knows what. I just wrote new songs that I felt more connected to. But, you know, looking back 25 years later, you're releasing something like that, a a song of demos that, you know, were just show how my songwriting process developed. I wasn't trying to make a record. I just wanted to put it out. Right. How neat. Okay, so now you're about to kick off tour with Michael McDonald. So what's Mm. in store for fans for this tour? 
I don't know what we're going to see. I, I have the first <laughs> show with Michael in a couple of nights. Um, I don't know him that well. I've only met him a couple of times, okay. but we've spoken, and we're going to do a couple of songs together. He's got his own set. I've got my set. Um, and I think it's going to be a wonderful night of soulful music. I don't know how it could be anything oh, yeah. other than that. It'll be a great, great night. So now, after this tour, what's next for you? Making my record. Okay. Um, I'm starting to write my own songs now. I have about four new songs over the last five weeks that I've been off the road, and hopefully I'll be able to continue. Are you excited about this group of songs? I am, I'm especially with the one I just wrote, which I guess is the best thing you could possibly say. You want to be more excited about the thing you just wrote, um, and I am. So okay. hopefully uh, it will continue. So you got to promise us when that next album is done, you'll come back and chat with us. Absolutely, I'd love to. Okay, Mark, thank you so much for sharing this project with us. Lovely time. Do you sing it out of the interview, too? No, we don't sing out. <laughs> okay, no problem. But you come back, we'll sing you back on. Sounds good. Okay, Mark, take care. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, you're going to hang out with American Idol singer Haley Reinhardt. She's got a brand new album. You're going to dig her voice. Keep it right here with your radio sisters on The Mulberry Lane Show. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain W.C. Handy, won't you look down over me Yeah, I got a first class ticket But I'm as blue as a boy can be Ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis But do I really feel The way I feel Saw the ghost of Elvis Music, arts, and lifestyle Back to the Mulberry Lane Show Now, here's Mulberry Lane well, her version of Elvis's Can't Help Falling in Love has more than 56 million streams on Spotify, and you're probably familiar with this version because it was featured in an extra gum commercial. And now singer-songwriter Haley Reinhart, who finished third on American Idol Season 10, has just released What's That Sound, an 11-track album that features her incomparable interpretations of covers from 1966 to 1969. <laughs> Haley Reinhardt, what's that sound? Her latest music spinning round. Yeah, yeah. Yay, thank you so much. That's awesome. Oh, great to have you with us. So, oh, it's such a pleasure. So a lot of the songs on What's That Sound are covers of male groups with a few female covers as well, and also mm -hmm. a few of your own original songs. So how did you choose the songs and bring your spin and your sound to them? So, yeah, there's 11 covers, three originals of mine. I actually wrote the originals prior to this record. I have quite a lot of material that isn't released yet, so these songs were newer, and I'm very much a fan of the 60s, the whole era from the style, the film, the music, the free-spirited nature of it all. So these songs happen to fit in with the record as I picked out these covers that I've basically grown up with, and I've heard my parents band of 40 years now okay. performing over time, and I've sang a lot of them with them, 
Mm-hmm. And I've really brought it full circle, and it's neat that you perform with your sisters. I also brought my dad and my mom. This record flew them out to L.A., and so my dad's playing guitar on it, and my mom's singing background vocals. That's awesome, because you grew up touring with them. It's great that it's full circle now. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you see kind of a commonality between the songs of the late 60s, that era, and now, and you feel like the vibe is both hopeful with what's going on and turbulent. Completely, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you look at a song like uh, For What It's Worth, and I kind of named the album after that song, What's That Sound? And, you know, there's a sense of urgency there, and it questions people. And I feel like today, in this world right now, we're doing a whole lot of questioning. A lot of things are being brought to the forefront, whether we like it or not. But among all the chaos, we're really bringing this new wave of consciousness into the world. As rough as it is, you know, people need to take a stand and take love side out of everything. You know, make a decision based on love and unity and peace, hopefully. Right. So you've done a lot of work with Postmodern Jukebox Online and on tour. And your version of Radiohead's Creep has over 112 million views. So did that work influence the songs that you chose? Well, it definitely influenced me in the fact that I love jazz as well. So doing these kinds of songs and interpretations has been a dream of mine. I've, you know, done a lot of jazz in high school, and that's kind of how I started, actually, and in college, and gone to New Orleans and done a whole bunch. But, you know, I wanted to bring Scott Bradley on my record to help me showcase and bring that side out of me and obviously showcase his talent being ragtime, honky-tonk, really authentic-sounding piano that actually my, my grandma used to play like that. So it's very, like, kind of near and dear to me. So doing songs like Sunny Afternoon, I love the Kinks version, but I knew I had to kind of change this one up. And Taking the more honky-tonk, ragtime approach has been really fun for me. That's awesome. So how did you get involved in Postmodern Jukebox? I actually stumbled upon it with my buddy Casey Abrams, and we went to this club called Hyde, and they were doing a residency in L.A. there. And they Scott knew of me, and he asked me to get up on stage, and we did a, a random version of All About the Bass before, you know, it uh-huh. was, you know, obviously before we recorded it, and uh, it was kind of this, you know, super slanky, New Orleans-y kind of feel with, yeah. with these, you know, big old horns and we did that there, and basically he asked me from then, hey, you want to come to Europe with us? We're hitting the road. And I jumped right on that opportunity. Awesome. That's great. Well, right now you're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show, and we're talking with American Idol third place winner from season 10, Haley Reinhardt. Her latest album on Concord Records is called What's That Sound? So you mentioned your grandma being a musician and, of course, your parents. So what did they pass on to you advice for having a career in music? Oh, man, so many things. I still call them on the daily to get their advice. They're truly the people that I can really trust to give me criticism even and just, you know, incomparable advice. Even still this way of uh, intuition, really, following my gut instincts. And also just a big sense of not only coming from a place of passion and singing from your heart, but also being very professional and handling situations in a diplomatic and a humane and a kind way. Mm -hmm. And I like to go straight to the source and look 
people in the eye and shake their hand and um, approach everything in kind of in a Chicago Midwestern right. kind of way, I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, us Nebraska girls get that. <laughs> yes, totally. That's yeah. Great. So talk about the studio experience for this album. You recorded on tape and live with the band. And how do you feel like this contributed to the feel? Yeah, I've always dreamt of, actually, I've dreamt of my third record being exactly this. I really, really wanted to always do a record to tape, to analog tape. And then to have the full band right in front of us at Sunset Sound, which is a legendary studio that half of these artists I've covered have actually performed and recorded these songs in that studio. That's so cool. Yeah, I felt the energy. Yeah, you probably felt the vibe of all that history. Exactly. That's great. Well, we're going to be right back after the break with more from Haley Reinhardt, third place winner on American Idol season 10. We're going to take you to break with Haley's rendition of I Can't Help Falling in Love with You. Now, this single went gold and was featured on a commercial for Extra Gum. You're listening to the Mulberry Lane Show brought to you by Braddock Finnegan Dermatology. Wise men say only you covered the mulberry lane show now here's mulberry lane well welcome back to the mulberry lane show brought to you by braddock finnegan dermatology right now we're in the middle of our chat with american idol season 10 third place winner Haley reinhardt now Haley has just released an album of covers from the late 60s plus a few originals called what's that sound now Haley has a beautiful, sultry voice, and right now she's talking about working with Grammy Award-winning producer and head of Concord Records, John Burke. Let's get back with Haley. What was it like working with Grammy Award winner producer John Burke? Oh my gosh, so I guess John Burke has had his eye on me for many years. I was with Interscope at the time. It's just all about timing. You know, you mentioned Can't Help Falling in Love, which got me my first gold record, and yeah. that really took me back into the label world, and people were paying attention. I had three deals on the table, not including Concord, and they were the last people I got reconnected with, John Burke, and I was like, wow, this feels right. This feels easy. This feels natural, and mm-hmm. him and I got to co-produce this record together and really put our trust in one another and made something that we're both very proud of. And you felt like you could be yourself mostly there. Yeah, I always felt that way. My friend Casey was on the record label mm-hmm. back in the day, and I always thought, wow, I could see myself here for yeah. sure. So then when you recorded these songs, you thought that you would go back and re-record the vocals, but you ended up keeping a lot of the original vocals that you did with the band. So that's pretty right. cool, and that doesn't happen very often. So talk about that. 
Yeah, I find myself getting very really attached to demos. They call it demoitis, yes. as I'm sure you've heard. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just like sometimes you can't recreate that vibe, you know, that initial thing that happens, yeah, especially magic. when you're working with other musicians and you got that one take that, you know, gives you the shivers. And there's been some of them that I even got really emotional, like can't find my way home. Not to mention how my dad has performed that song and it's always meant so much to me. But you have a certain take and you're just like, whoa, there was something there right. that cannot be recreated. Right. So what about your preparation into your interpretation of your voice? Do you plan a lot what you're going to do in advance or do you kind of plan and then just let it ride whatever happens Pretty much just let it ride. I think, once again, my instincts always speak volumes, and I like to just see what comes out and then try to finesse it from there as quickly as possible. And, you know, sometimes I end up going out on the road and kind of elaborating on these melodies, and, and I think, oh, man, what if, I, what if I went back in now and these songs would have even been more authentic to my voice and yeah. my stylings. But at the same rate, you know, it's good to keep things simplistic and also paying homage to these artists. I didn't want to go too outside of the box. Yeah. And so I think there's a balance that needs to happen. So when you're in the studio and you start to feel emotional, almost to the point of crying or getting teared up, do you mm -hmm. pull it back or do you just say, let's just go with it and see what happens? Oh, man. I mean, I obviously don't want to have a, a sob fest going on, right. <laughs> especially for the vocals, right? But um, I let myself go there and just feel what I needed to feel. And it was a beautiful take that we did for Can't Find My Way Home. And yeah. I think back to growing up and always feeling that kind of emotion when my father sang it right. um, very humbly. And, you know, and now, you know, his little daughter is taking it on and he's playing guitar and in these moments I kind of look at myself like as if I'm older than I am now yeah. looking back at this memory and this thing that I'll be able to cherish yes. with my family forever like you were taking a snapshot in your head like remember this totally That's... totally which I'm sure you've done with your sister yes, as well absolutely mm -hmm. many moments like that well, right now you're listening to The Mulberry Lane Show, and we're chatting with Haley Reinhardt, season 10, third place winner on American Idol. She's talking about her new album, What's That Sound? So now let's yeah. talk about your experience on American Idol. Looking back, what did you think you learned from that experience? Oh my gosh. I mean, what didn't we learn? Yeah. It was such incredible experience. All this behind the scenes stuff that nobody could see. We were constantly working. And then we went on the 50 city tour directly after. And um, if I could get through that, I truly believe I could get through anything. Wow. So paint us a picture. What was it like? Just like crazy stress? Um, I mean, it's such a surreal dream at this point to look back and try to remember all the emotions and things that were going on. You know, we were obviously doing the, the actual show, yeah. and we would have to prepare in a very short amount of time, you know, one to two to three songs, which many times you hope you know, but then there's other ones that you have to quickly learn. So between that, there was all kinds of interviewing and flying around and doing the hometown shows and 
it really it prepared me for the the longevity of the career that I've always hoped and dreamt of. Right. So I can't say enough good things about it, even though it, it was hard at times and I missed my family like crazy. It really was the best preparation. So when you were, you know, about to go on and maybe a song that you just didn't have a lot of time with before you performed it, what kind of yeah. pep talk did you give yourself? What did you tell yourself before you went on? Oh, my gosh. I mean, when you say that, I think of, one of my very last songs, it was the very last day, I just came back from my hometown visit with, uh-huh. you know, 30,000 people came out to see us in the rain. Wow. That was awesome. So my dad almost missed his flight, and he basically walks on stage, and we're playing Led Zeppelin, and that was my pick. But the next performance was Jimmy Iovine's pick, which was Rhiannon. I love Fleetwood Mac, love Stevie. I did not have enough time to really, really sit with these abstract lyrics. I yeah. mean, they were really out there and super artsy, so... I, honest to God, I had to say a prayer. I was just like, please get me through this song. I don't even know how I did it. It was more like an out-of-body kind of experience. And I had to do like one of those Coke moments where I talked with Ryan Seacrest. And I was like, why does this have to be today where I have to go right from talking about random things into this song where I really needed that time to like mentally prepare and go through the lyrics over and over I just remember feeling this weight lifted off my shoulders and being very kind of lightheaded afterwards and just thinking, wow, where did that come from? Thank God I got through. Yeah, because you probably proved to yourself that you had that in you. So Yeah, in those moments, it's like fight or flight, and you've you got to fight for what you want. So it definitely brought the fire out in me. Right. That's great to discover that. So will you be touring with this new album? So I'm kicking it off October 22nd in okay. Phoenix going through, you know, West Coast, L.A., and and all the way through my hometown of Chicago and the Midwest, and we finish off in Atlanta on November 18th. So, yeah, you can find my dates up on HaleyReinhardt.com. Yeah, come check out our show, please. Okay, great. And finally, what do you hope people feel when they listen to this new album and this group of songs? I hope that it immediately puts a smile on people's faces and that they can discover something within themselves, whether it's a childlike quality or a sense of hope and um, and faith in humanity. I, you know, brought that same kind of flavor with my originals as I did with these covers, and hopefully, yeah, it can create a sense of awareness and bring people together more than anything else. Love it. Great message. Haley, we want to thank you for joining us today. The new album is a What's That Sound. It's out now. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Haley Reinhardt here on the Mulberry Lane Show. What's That Sound is the album. Download it, stream it, play it on repeat. When we come back here on the show, it's New York Times bestselling author, Victoria Ayard. Keep hanging out with us. We're taking you to break with the smooth sounds of Haley Reinhardt. It's not the way you smile that touch my heart. Is it? 
got you covered. The Mulberry Lane Show. Now, here's Mulberry Lane. Well, looking for a new read, check out Victoria Aveyard's best-selling series, Red Queen. The third book in the series, King's Cage, has just been released. And right now, you have the unique opportunity to hear from Victoria herself about what inspires her writing and how she became a best-selling author. Welcome, welcome to the show, Victoria Aveyard. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. First, for people who don't know about the series, give us an overview on the characters and what's been happening. Okay, so the entire series of Red Queen is, the way I describe it, kind of Hunger Games meets Game of Thrones meets X-Men. Those are the okay. tonal references. <laughs> yeah, That's... so if you like something there, maybe you'll like the book. <laughs> okay, your first book out of the gate was this series. Yeah, yeah, I started writing the first book right after I graduated college. I had graduated with a film degree in the middle of a recession with a lot of college books. It was in a really scary spot. Luckily, my parents didn't freak out when I said, I want to move home to write a book. Was this the type of book that had been rolling around in your mind for a long time? Not as long as you would expect. It had been sort of in my brain for, I think, a few months at the time. I had first had the original idea. Okay. But then once I really knew I was going to pursue it, it all just kind of came together very, very quickly. And then when you write a series, is it hard to know where you end one book and start the next? <laughs> Not really, um, okay. because I go by three-act structure, which is very similar to most books and movies. So it's quite easy to sort of pick where the endings are going to be just by how they work. When I write a book, I always know where it begins and it ends. You really can't start a book unless you know where the ending of that okay. particular book is. I know you, you also write screenplays, so do those inform each other? Yeah, definitely. They're similar in terms of structure. It's the medium that it looks very, very different, but the bones are the same, if that makes sense. The, okay. uh, the basic story depth is very similar, at least for me in the way that I write. So when you write, are you inspired more by words or like pictures in your mind? <laughs> I'm a really visual writer, so okay. um, I kind of have to see it out in my head. But then there are also, you know, certain lines that'll pop out to me and I'll have to write them down and work them in later. Okay. What led you to the young adult genre versus others? Um, I've always been a big fan of young adult, especially growing up. Um, I was in high school when sort of the Twilight craze hit. Okay. So I was the perfect age for sort of the storm of YA novels that came out of that. And then when I was writing the story, I knew the main character was a teenage girl and... Uh -huh. The way that you usually define YA is the age of the main character, so it, it really fell into that category, and I think YA as a genre has a lot of really great benefits, you know. You can mix and match your genres quite easily, uh -huh. and you can do a, a lot more. You're not sort of locked into whatever genre you're writing in. Now, how much of Victoria gets into your book uh, characters? <laughs> Uh, so these books are written in first person, and partly because of that, partly because whenever you write, you put a little bit of yourself sure. in there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of me in the main character and in a lot of the characters, even the villain. Um, I think when you're writing, you really need something in every single person that you understand that is intrinsic to you. Pick up King's Cage, the third book in the best-selling series, Red Queen, by author Victoria Aveyard. You can learn more about Victoria Aveyard at victoriaaveyard.com. That's A-V-E-Y-A-R-D. Everyone's pretty stoked about the third installment of the Red Queen series called King's Cage. Guys, check it out. It's all that and more. And Victoria, thanks for adding some intrigue and drama to the show today. Rachel, who do we want to thank next? 
Well, a big singer-songwriter salute to Grammy Award winner Mark Cohn. You guys were walking in Memphis with Mark today. Mark, thanks for bringing insight and inspiration to the show today. Who else, Allie? Okay, well, finally, big high five to Haley Reinhart. Haley plays third on American Idol season 10, and she now has a new release out on Concord Records. Her soulful pop voice will certainly draw you in, so you've got to pick up her new release called What's That Sound, featuring songs from the late 60s and some of her own originals, too. Haley, thanks for stopping by and for the girl talk. Sisters, Mm -hmm. that wraps it up. Make sure you guys join us same time, same place next weekend. Same sister couch. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be here. Yep, we'll be waiting for you. Bo, stay happy and stay blessed. Allie, don't forget to be awesome. Rachel, that's a wrap. See you next week. I don't love you for your money. 